and so yeah it was just kind of a chaotic like i was so stressed i was scratching myself in my sleep and oh, i ended up like waking up in a pool of blood because oh, really? wow. i'd scratched through my arm and like it's yeah it was horrific um, you could sleep yeah it was a rough it was a rough shoot That was the sound of uh, young filmmaker uh, David Fairhurst. You'll hear a bit more from David in a minute and uh, about his uh, great debut feature film, Reaching Distance. But first, you got me. Uh, my name is Dov Cornets, and you're listening to the Films That Changed My Life podcast. Dave's got, um, or should I call him David? I don't know if we're that intimate. Um, David's got um, some great films that changed his life, some real surprises, and um, I think his journey to becoming a filmmaker is quite a fascinating one, starting off as a, a child actor inspired by uh, Die Hard, of course. Quite an influential film, that one, i got to say, and um, up until making this feature, which is really impressive, and it's a film that we're presenting, we being Film Inc., um, there are a bunch of screenings happening um, throughout October and November, and uh, I'll tell you more about that in a minute after you hear a bit more from David. Speak soon. No, I'm just fascinated. So you made Reaching Distance, you know? It's like, uh, how did how did that emerge, I suppose, you know? In like, terms of the original idea or yeah, just the Yeah, like how did you end up kind of committing to make a feature film? I was pretty hard set on making a feature from the time I was like 15 or something. And I was dead sort of like, I'm going to make one by the time I'm 21, which uh. didn't pan out. <laughs> uh, but I kind of found that, that I kind of would come up with different plans of how I was going to do that. I was going to make one in high school and discovered that was way too hard. And then I was going to try to make one by borrowing equipment on weekends at film school and then realized because it was like 40 contact hours a week at the film school I was at that that was never going to happen either. And then it was just kind of a slog with a couple of different projects. There was one we spent about a year trying to get off the ground that was like another micro-budget feature the year after we graduated, but we soon realised that we didn't have the the place to kind of find the money to get it made. Um, and then it was, I think, during that year that I came up with the idea for Reaching Distance. Um, so I was, I crewed on a lot of films and I crewed on a film called Drown for, oh, yeah. I think it was something like four months, um, unpaid. Okay. And so I was working like a retail job in the day whilst also shooting all night on like a beach in the middle of which beach was it shooting all night in the beach and yeah, yeah, yeah. i would sometimes do like 36 hour days where you'd shoot all night then work all day and then shoot all night again wow. um and there was a few people that were like that i remember i think the production manager was hallucinating like giant foxes and things like that um just natural which, hallucination because i wonder i know i would need some help in okay or maybe to, yeah because I, I never really hallucinated but i would i would get these feelings of deja vu that was so intense that i was like it was a blur yeah, i've yeah. done this before okay something is up with the world you know it's, it's yeah. all, you know um which of course feeds into reaching yeah which being, was plot, kind of know. one of the big like f that's the what if of reaching distances what if it's not deja vu what if something really is wrong yeah um yeah, yeah, yeah. and so that I was kind of stewing on wanting to do something around that. Yeah. Um, and then it was just on a, because the film school I was at was like a 90 minute bus ride from my house every day. I'd spent half my life on buses and on the journey back from somewhere, it just kind of clicked for me of this idea of this story on a bus. And then the whole thing kind of came together in one half hour bus ride. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the whole idea just kind of gelled and became whole. And then once I kind of had it, I think I wrote it in about three months, at least the first draft. Um, and then it was with a couple of other producers. We were going to make it for a much smaller budget. It was initially just going to be we would buy a bus and then drive around in circles all night and shoot it handheld, actually moving, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and then when it fell apart with them, we kind of reevaluated how we were actually going to shoot it. Um, and then when I brought on Becca Saunders and Kane Taylor, the producers that ended up making the film, mm. um, we kind of reevaluated the entire approach we were going to have to it. And then it was just kind of getting the ball rolling. And once we started casting, everything kind of just built and built and built to the point where it actually, we had to make it or everything was going to fall apart. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Wow. No, and, and I guess winding back from that, because I always wonder, you're relatively young. Are you like, are you under 30? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it's all, it, I'm still it, a it, miserable failure. I didn't make one by the time I'm 21. But uh. <laughs> Dude, like I remember like, because I, I aspired to be a filmmaker at one stage oh. in my life. And I, I thought before 30 is a pretty good achievement, right? Yeah. You know, like which you've obviously done, you know, like, and um, you know, John Singleton, but still, right? I don't know if that's a reference that you get. Uh, Boys in the Hood, John Singleton? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How yeah. old is he I, when he I'm made pretty it? sure he made it. I, I, I'm trying to think. Like, we'll have to do some research, but I, I think 20 or something oh like my that. Goodness. You know, okay. like, yeah. so he was really kind of, he was like this young voice of a generation or something, you know, like, you yeah. Know. You know, I grew up in the VHS generation or whatever. You probably, you know, DVDs. And yeah, I was, I was on the the turning point from VHS to DVD, I think. So I kind of got the but you best were, of both worlds you, you grew up with the internet all around you, right? And uh, yeah. Because I, I wonder, like, how does... These days people go out and they make web series or whatever, you know? Like, I suppose, how do you arrive, like, as... Because, you know, some people... What did I... I saw on Facebook the other day, you know, Paul Schrader, who wrote Taxi Driver, going, oh, film's dead and, you know, and all this. Mm. I do wonder, like, how do young people actually aspire to make feature films, you know? Like, and I think we'll, this will be probably be the basis, partly, on of this chat yeah. of films that may have changed your life. And some of them may have inspired you to... Uh, make feature films or what is it yeah, exactly I've always about just, features? I, I'm obsessed with the idea of structure and like particularly mm. three-act structure or kind of more four with a lot of the stuff that I've done. But So you probably don't enjoy um, watching a film because you can kind of see it. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> but I, I really struggle with shorts. Like I really, really had a hard time condensing ideas into such a short space because you can't really get a lot of character growth. No. You can't have much of a beginning, a middle and an end when you're trying to squeeze into eight minutes. Like there's a few brilliant shorts that do it. Yeah. Wonderfully, but that's pretty rare and it's something I struggled with. And so all the shorts that I was making were all, you know, 10 minutes long, 20 minutes long. And so I just kind of figured that the way that my, that stories kind of come together in my head, I, I kind of need that long form way of doing things. And cause I really like stuff that has an end as much as if I was ever going to do a web series, I think it would be more something that really did have a definitive start and finish to it instead of something that would just be an ongoing yeah, thing. Yeah. Um, so do you get frustrated? I just out of interest, cause I, I sometimes get frustrated. I, I'll watch a season of a, you know, one of these, you know, must watch TV like Mad Men or something, you know, and then all house of cards. And it's like, that's all I need. Whereas, it's sort of, I, I tend to find, and again, it's just me personally, like it becomes like melodramatic after that, you know? Yeah, well, it's always it, painful when you see a TV show reach where it should be wrapping things up and, and then, then they, they just keep dragging characters. On. Yeah, <laughs> like, and it's just, you end up. that's the way it's justified. I'm like, can't get, you know. It's just a lot of wheel spinning and shoe leather and it just, yeah, yeah it's kind of heartbreaking to watch something like that, that there's all this kind of promise to mm. see something end in a really powerful way, but you just kind of lose that by the time that you... Yeah, that's what it seems like. But people seem to like that. But then again, people really like soap operas, you know? Like yeah. People, you know, so I kind of go, yeah, whatever. But I just love it, like, when people go, golden age of TV and all that. And I'm a bit like, I can only take it in small doses, you know? Yeah. Like, I can't. Well, there's certain it. stuff I love, like Fargo, which okay. I think is really smart having that every season as a different... Yeah, like case or whatever. Yeah. yeah um, and it just means that they do get to kind of have these entire narratives get wrapped up whilst also continuing from year to year. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. That's true. Um, so yeah, you do I do watch stuff like that. Yeah, I do yeah. watch TV, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but so, so, and also, so with Reaching Distance, which obviously, you know, this, the drama in it, because, you know, yes, there's the bus thing, which explains, you know, you explained how that may have, um, you know, been yeah. the spark. And then also being, you know, in a daze from <laughs> yeah. making... Um, bit working on drown but i wonder like what about the the central idea was that just more like well that's drama or did that have any kind of personal connection to you because i gotta say like i, I don't know it's kind of interesting because I, I i read the press release for it that the publicist put together which you guys you know obviously mm. fed into but it sort of gives away something that I thought was a little bit kind of... It's a um, tricky film because it... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a bit like, of a twist, right? There you is know? a twist in yeah. the film, which I, I, it's being marketed as kind of a twist film. Um, and it happens earlier than you'd expect, okay. I guess, leaving it that general. Um, and that kind of reframes the, yeah, the story yeah. from then on out. Correct. Um, so it has been really tricky to market of that you, you're really getting an idea of the first third of the film, but then things kind of go a bit crazier yeah. um, from there. So. so was that a conscious you talked about 
you spoke about structure, you know, something you're obsessed about. Was that always kind of like, well, yeah. this is where well, it's I, going I to I do be. kind of struggle with, that was something we got back again and again and again and again was, oh no, hold the twist to the end, hold the twist to the end, which um, I get really frustrated by in films when it becomes about the twist instead yeah, of becoming yeah. about the characters. And yeah. just in writing, reaching distance, putting it together, as you could kind of just feel that it needed to, you need this information a lot earlier because um, otherwise it becomes about the twists and you lose the central journey of the characters and that's okay that's what we go to the movies for not just for shock not just for yeah um those kind of narrative twists um and so yeah that was a big thing that i put up a lot of i fought quite hard for yeah because yeah, people go um, no don't you know like we yeah need to, we, we don't want to know what that and you that get all these suggestions yeah, of yeah. yeah sort of like can we have a scene where he like goes underneath the bus and looks in the machinery and stuff like that doesn't <laughs> matter like when we're losing character as soon as we do something okay. like that it's just shoe leather you're just kind of doing stuff for the sake of yeah yeah, yeah. having narrative beats happen in a certain place okay um so, so but back yeah. to my question, which is that the twist or whatever that is that does that have any personal resonance or was it just dramatic that you thought would um, uh, make it interesting? There, yeah, there's a lot of oh, it's so hard to talk about without spoilers. Um, <laughs> I'm going to be super vague about it, but okay. it, it, when please see the film. But when yeah. you do see the film, the the central conceit of it kind of comes out of two things that really, really scare me. Mm. Um, and I think that that kind of feeling of the that fear, that that fear and that dread, I think very much puts kind of, is the centerpiece of the whole gotcha. film and so, what makes it personal for me. Mm, 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 um, and then just also the Id- idea of like Logan, the main character in the film, is a bit of a prick for lack of a better word, and it is about kind of seeing his development. So there's a personal kind of stuff about guilt, and he's kind of this bitter, jaded guy um and i'd like to think that i'm not like that but occasionally you know you do get in situations where um like i remember i got hit by a drunk driver once and totaled my car and i do remember just the the anger that you feel towards the person that did that to you is quite all-consuming um and just trying to but it's also quite self-harming as well and so i think that was a that definitely fed into the scripts, okay. particularly around Matt Day's character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's a, that's such an interesting, yeah, like that you talk about that because, yeah, we've all felt that, haven't we, you know, where you sort of get really pissed and then you go like, oh, I didn't need to do that. You yeah, know? Like, and you just, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. just running over. It's like having arguments in the shower. You just kind of keep poisoning yeah. yourself with these hateful kind of things in your head, but it's only hurting you Yeah, and it's not actually having an impact on no. whoever it is that you're angry at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so that's, a, that's definitely explored in the okay. film. Yeah, yeah. So um, let's wind back then, I guess, a little bit and um, we'll keep that bit cryptic. But yeah, <laughs> it might require some editing. No, 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 just see the film. No, no, yeah. we, you didn't give anything away. But I guess, um, I suppose, in terms of your passion for filmmaking, what you, you talked about wanting to make a film when you were 15. So yeah. what, what, what inspired I, that kind of stuff? I guess in terms of films that changed my life, yeah. the, the, the first really big one to address would be Die Hard. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> which you wouldn't see a lot of in 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 reaching distance. But um, I remember as More a kid, speed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah sorry. I've been describing it as it's sort of like Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind meets Speed. But okay, uh, yeah. that's a good one. Um, uh, I remember when I was quite young, our family had just done their like the family tree. Our granddad had gone to all this effort and gone through the entire family tree and put it together. And the whole family came together to kind of scour over it and tell stories and things like that. And as a kid, I think I was like seven. I did not care at all. And so I remember going to the back, I think it was my grandparents' bedroom. They had this tiny TV that was probably the size of an iPad nowadays and just turning on the TV to see whatever whatever was on. And it just happened to start at the very beginning of Die Hard, which I was way too young to see at the time. Um, But my family was so distracted by this, they came in and found me like three hours later just in shock having seen this film that I think it was the first time that my brain ever comprehended that people had made that. Yeah. yeah, Um, and I've seen that film so many times. I swear I could teach a a course on it in terms of like the first half hour of that film is astonishing in terms of how it educates the audience with all the information they need for the rest of the story. Um, like it's truly amazing how little exposition there is at the beginning of that film. It's all just character beats that are telling you about, John McClane and his wife and things like that. But the way that the camera moves, it establishes all the geography, all the additional characters, 
pretty much everything you would need to know is just kind of built by this amazing camera work that John McTiernan puts together. And I think mm. it's it's kind of this perfectly constructed thing. And I think when I saw it, that was the first time I kind of realised that it was a constructed piece of something or other. It's fun, funny you mentioned that it's a, you saw it at Christmas time because I always feel like um, that that became like by default, like some sort of a classic Christmas movie. Yeah, well, for me it is it every single year. Yeah, 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 yeah. That it's kind of, it, it was a television tradition almost, yeah? Like, yeah, that... well, for me it's that and like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, like mm, Shane Black, okay. all of his oeuvre are definitely more Christmas movies to me than, oh, I don't know, whatever that. <laughs> it's a Wonderful Rudolph Life. Right well, It's a Wonderful Life <laughs> is, I'm a huge Capra sucker as well. So that film is on the roster, but it's also combined with all these kind of schlocky 80s action films that were, for some reason, drawn to Christmas in particular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's fascinating you saw it on telly because that's, I find, like, my big moment, you know, was, yeah, like, just in in the accidentally turning on the telly. And when, when I was young and they would screen films, like, in the middle of the night and, like, mm. these obscure things and you just switch it on and it's like... And yeah, you can get your mind blown. Yeah, like I, so. I think that stuff registers with you because it feels like fate. It's this special thing that you've yeah. discovered. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which for, I mean, like another really huge thing for me in terms of wanting me to go, in, wanting to go into film was Spaced, the oh, yeah. Edgar Wright TV yeah. show, yeah, which yeah. I stumbled upon completely by accident. It was your just own turned on the TV, secret. and it was yeah, again yeah. just that kind of chance of first episode somehow managed to to find it, and I think I managed to see like. I think there's only 12 episodes in all in that series, but I managed to see, I think, five or six of them um, and then completely forgot the name of the series. And it was only our family just got on the internet and I didn't really know how to use IMDb. So it was kind of this lost thing. Um, but it was yeah. such a it was such a genius show that it had all this kind of crazy energy to it. And it was exactly the kind of stuff that I was trying to make then when I was a kid. It was the first thing that made me feel that, oh, I could do this, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that it's... It's a show about flatmates, but it has this really cinematic, kinetic energy to it. Yeah. Um, and so I remember when I, I went around to a friend's place one night and their parents had happened to rent Shaun of the Dead. And I walked into the room and literally screamed because I was so happy that I'd managed to somehow track down the spaced people again yeah, yeah. in this movie. Um, and again, it was another thing I was way too young for, but I just kind of forced my friend who I was meant to be hanging out with to sit down and watch the entirety of that film as well. And were you trying and, to emulate these things? You know, you're saying like, so when you say yeah. you were seven and you watched Die Hard and you, like, did you really, like when you say you figured out that someone was actually, you know, like making this? Because I've got, I've got an eight-year-old son and I'm always amazed. He doesn't get it, you know? like okay, he, he, right. You know, as in like he watches things and... But he doesn't get that, I don't know, you know, that that actor is voicing, like, say, it's an animation or, you know, like... Yeah, I think know. I think part of it, I was a, I'm I'm a failed child actor. Uh, <laughs> I used to go yeah, yeah. that I, okay, I so got you... my first agent when I was, like, nine or ten. Okay. Um, and I did a lot of theatre work and a few commercials and then just flunked out of a lot of TV shows and <laughs> um, movie auditions. Uh, oh, all that rejection, it sucks, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but I think because of that, I had a good idea of... Okay. A little bit of behind the scenes of how it worked. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I'm always yeah. amazed. Yeah, with my son, it's like hilarious. Sorry to talk about myself, but it's like, yeah, he'll, he'll, he, he loves gaming. Of course, as all kids mm. these days do. And like, he's like, yeah, dad, just turn on the phone and you know record me playing this game. And I'm like, man, shouldn't you like script it? <laughs> yeah. You know, like think about how you. <laughs> no, 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 he doesn't. Just doesn't get what the things that he's watching do you know like yeah and it thinks that he can just it's a different it. world i was at, we were at vidcon a few weeks ago okay. in melbourne like youtube's mm. massive conference and it was a little bit heartbreaking to see these people that had like these 13 year olds would just flood these people that were making just videos of them these people just talking about their lives in their bedroom mm. that were in extremely low effort kind of no production value just people chatting about themselves but they were treated like these kind of mega stars yeah, yeah while you're yeah. sitting there being like i've just spent four years on this movie it's amazing <laughs> it's destroyed it? my yeah. life and uh no one will like not as many people will see as that what we've made as that guy bedroom. just sitting in his bedroom so yeah. i think it's going to be interesting to see where things go and i guess the younger generation doesn't have that that tie to the idea of you go to the movies and you have that experience the lights go down and kind of that magic of yeah, they just I think that's not content. special anymore. Yeah, 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 yeah. But still, you'd think that with that content, something a bit more elevated and smarter would be yeah. like resonate. There, there are a bunch of amazing YouTubers out there that are trying to do 
interesting stuff. Um, I think it's just, there's just so many people out there that are trying to actually make an impact. I think it'd be really tricky. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of noise. So did you try to, as I said, like emulate something like Die Hard with a uh, Super yeah, 8 camera or I, something? Yeah, or? High 8. That high was eight. The, that's yeah. right, that's the and then tapes, yeah. I'm trying to make action movies and things like that. No, that was such garbage. Um, that was <laughs> well, so terrible. Did you do I, a speed version or was Die Hard always the... Because I'm well, thinking no, that, I think that, the, the first uh, like parody, the f- first film I ever made was a parody of Psycho. Oh, wow. About like a cat that was killing people. But because f- I was young and naive, it was called Pussy, which <laughs> in retrospect, <laughs> I'm amazed my parents let me get away with. But um, yeah, pretty much anything I could ape, I would. Um, and I remember... There's like a church youth camp that I used to make ads for for every year because it was like a different theme. It'd be superheroes or Lord of the Rings or something like okay. that. And so I'd kind of study the films that were in that kind of genre and then mimic them in the videos that I made for them. And I yeah. got I got to be quite a good mimic, okay. I think, in the way that I would shoot stuff. And it forced you to be ingenious of, oh, I don't have a dolly. How am I going to do this? And so you'd, you'd tape yourself to a skateboard and then get someone to you know, yeah, push you down the street. Trolley, yeah, 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 yeah. And so I, there's definitely that kind of DIY ingenuity thing kind of got built into the way that I make stuff, which yeah. I think is quite present in reaching distance of a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. done very practically okay. um, and kind of old school. Yeah, because it is, yeah. So so you felt that when you were, did you have people going, oh, you don't need to do that or something? But you well, were kind of Yeah, I think that- a lot of people were saying, well, you've got to do this all green screen right that's the only way to to kind of make the sim trav of the bus moving work and i was like oh no I can't. you have to go rear projection like that's the only way to do it which was a nightmare because it was you know um the bus is 10 meters long and so you need it was something like 30 something meters of rear projection screen that we had to fill with plates and so there was five projectors running at once that all had to be synced up to make it look like it was moving and then you couldn't shoot off the edge of it and things like that but i think First off, there was no way we could have made the film if it was green screen. Just the post budget would have been of course, yeah. insane. Um, but it adds this kind of texture to it that is really quite beautiful. So you have all these lights bouncing off the metal rails in the in the bus, and it just kind of it adds this really tactile feel to it. And it's it's not a hundred percent convincing if you're really looking out there, but I think that adds to the totally it's the a craziness of the film kind of yeah. thing aspect to it. No, no, totally. And I was wondering actually how, yeah, how is it that you could have pulled this off. And obviously you didn't do much CGI stuff. I think or... there's there's five green screen shots in the film. Okay. And that's it. Yeah. Um, and considering the concept and the idea, yeah, yeah. it's quite a... And the fact that it's meant to be on a moving bus, yeah. um, which was just reprojection, then somebody literally standing outside the bus, shaking it. Um, <laughs> it was lo-fi, but it, like it works, it feels real. Um, yeah, yeah. Particularly with the, the sound design in there. Um, yeah. And I, like I really... Going back to the films that changed my yeah, life yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. thing. Um, like one of my, I think my favorite film of all time is Sherlock Jr., the okay. Buster Keaton yeah, yeah, silent yeah. film from yeah. the 20s. Um, just the ingenuity of of that film is astonishing. Um, in terms of like there's a scene where, say there, you need to see the inside and the outside of a house and then there's kind of a cross section of like one of the walls fades away so you can kind of see inside. They yeah. literally just pulled the wall off of a building Um and there's all that kind of really intelligent, like just they didn't have the option of CGI, so they just found ways to do things, even if it was a lot of effort. Yeah. Um, and there's a scene in there where he, like, he literally walks into a cinema screen, um, and then every time that the scene cuts, he's kind of left in the same place in these precarious situations of, like, he'll be leaning down, and then it will cut, and he's standing on a rock in the middle of the ocean, and yeah. a wave hits him in the face, and he falls over into a lion's den and um like they had architectural tools that they took to measure the exact distance from the camera to keep everything matching so when that cut happened it felt like he was in the same place and, yeah um there's just something about that well it's magic isn't it yeah it's kind of like i, I actually wonder did you are you interested in magic I mean, I'm uh, cause no because <laughs> i always Sadly, feel like yeah. i used to as a, you know i as i may have mentioned like yeah i wanted to make films and like i remember like going on my, you know discovering because montage is kind of the yeah. sort of the key to the magic isn't it really in some ways what i mean by that is like i i remember going okay well what this was before way before cgi which is showing my age but yeah like there was a blanket and someone standing in front of it and of course you know you throw the blanket over the lens and then it comes down and it's a completely different shot you okay know? Like, yeah whatever you know so without and it looks like not, there was no cut, so to speak, mm. you know, like, so it's kind of when you discover that kind of stuff, you kind of, 
I don't know. It's, it's almost amazing. like you, you want to play with it a bit. And um, yeah. so when, I'm wondering when you write a script, do you kind of like, are you yeah, I'm thinking very how visual. it's going to be um, yeah. pulled off? Like typically I'll have an entire film like in my head, um, like not down to shot by shot exactly, but I, it's kind of like how you remember a dream. If you're sort of like, oh yeah, that guy goes over there and then this thing happens and then this one big important thing happens. And so I think usually by the time I'm putting... Well, not pen to paper, but keyboard to whatever. Um, I usually have a very clear idea of the entire film as a whole and where it's going and how you're going to get from scene to scene and, and things like that. So, yeah, 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 I am quite visual in terms of the way that I. And do you storyboard write. it and stuff like that? Or do you yeah, yeah, well, I've been quite practical in the way that I storyboard in terms of even at film school, which is embarrassing. I would shoot like with like Kendall action figures and a camera and I would like just shoot these kind of actual frames on a camera yeah. with these prop stand-ins to kind of just get an idea of the physicality of it as opposed to it drawing it drawing where you can't kind of get the scope of a camera move. And so for reaching distance, because I bought the bus a year before we shot it, um, Goldie and I, our cinematographer, just took a couple of friends up as stand-ins and we shot the entire film with stand-ins in the bus because we knew it would be such a nightmare to yeah to like figure out coverage when you're in a two meter by 10 meter box where there's chairs everywhere and rails and um just trying to work out the how to shoot it and make it engaging in that smaller space we figured that we kind of needed to make the film twice over and so we shot three rounds of storyboards with kendall's no um no no, with people (laughs) um and then i would edit it together almost like the film and so i had this mini version of the film and was able to learn from all my mistakes three times before we actually got on set. And so I had this really detailed shot list and storyboard where I knew exactly what we would be shooting and could point to this mocked up version of the scene and show everyone exactly what we'd be capturing You were showing kind of video. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like an edit of the scene essentially. Um, And that allowed us to, we were shooting like seven pages a day, that kind of thing on the film, which is insane. Yeah. And that's what allowed us to do that. And sometimes we'd have to shoot out of sequence with different scenes just because of the way the bus was arranged for that day. And so it allowed you to be able to shoot half of one scene and then skip to another scene and then back to the other half of one. Yeah, um, I'm sure it was painful for the actors, but it uh, actually allowed us to get, get all done. the coverage that we needed in the, the time we had and the, the money we had. Yeah. And so winding back, you mentioned Sherlock Jr. So obviously, like, was that like a conscientious thing where you you know, studied Buster Keaton or The Silence or something? Like, yeah, like, I was just... I don't it's know not how I got in silent film. I, it might have been stuff. my parents would kind of had like a chap, Chaplin VHS or something. Okay. And I got really into Chaplin and then I discovered Keaton and it was like a whole new world and I became kind of obsessed with yeah. his films. Um, I'm not entirely sure. There was just the, the ingenuity to it. And yeah. like Sherlock Jr. is incredibly postmodern for a film that was made in like 1924, I think it was. Um, which particularly... I think out of the, the films we've probably discussed today, the, its influence on reaching distance is huge in terms of the way that it tells its story of that it, it's about a guy that he like literally climbs in, he has problems in real life. And then so he literally cry, climbs into a cinema screen and then in this kind of cinema dream thing, he resolves his mental issues in this kind of physicalized yeah. way. Um, and I guess the idea of physicalizing the mental is something that's really carried over with to almost everything I've done. Like I think the last two shorts I've done were very much about people battling their inner demons, but they were literally in front of them in some way or another, whether it was a time-traveling cowboy movie or like a ninja romantic comedy. It was kind of all about people quite literally facing the, their own demons in different kind of high-concept ways. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, 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 and reaching distances like that of it's a, a man facing his own memories yeah. within a bus. Yeah, 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 yeah. You were saying you mentioned you were you know on this you know working for free on a film set and things like that. Was that like a conscientious effort to kind of meet people or to break yeah, in the industry I, or what was your? Yeah, well, uh, I just kind of I didn't really understand how the industry worked in terms of I kind of most industries you start at the bottom and you work your way to the top yeah. film doesn't really work like that. And it was kind of a year of me crewing on stuff to learn that of that. I did a lot of lighting department, camera department stuff. Cause um, you're technically kind of. Yeah. Well, I just felt like well, I'm next to the camera and that's kind of, you know, where you're meant to be if you're going to become a director. But yeah. you know, if you're a good camera assistant, you're trying to work your way up to be a really good focus puller or at best a DP, but you're not, None of those paths really lead to directing, yeah. um, which is where my heart 
kind of was. And I realized that like, I, I really enjoyed doing camera work, but I just didn't have the the dexterity and the focus to be able to do it really, really well to mm. be able to kind of get the jobs that are going to help you to survive. Yeah. Um, the one thing I was good at was editing. And okay. so that's kind of where I, I kind of left that side of things um, in terms of being on set quite consciously stopped taking on set gigs and moved primarily into directing advertising and then just editing whatever would come my way. Okay. And so I did a lot of music videos and then I've kind of been directing advertising for the past three years. Okay. Yeah. How's that? Oh, you know, um, <laughs> occasionally you get really fun and exciting things to do, but they are few and far between a lot of jobs that are just, it's someone speaking to camera and then B-roll. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and as a director, you're not really It's more just working with talent. We're yeah. more presenters than, yeah. Like uh, shooting Reaching Distance was a bit of a, an effort to kind of get back into the mindset of what's really needed to be a direct drama yeah, um, and direct actors that are actually playing real roles instead of just this kind of presenter thing that I've been dealing with for the past couple of years. Okay. Um, but you definitely do learn a lot. And even in the, the more mundane gigs, because you're slowly going crazy, you're trying to figure out interesting ways to shoot stuff. And so just being behind the camera and being creative every single day, I think definitely does help build that. So I, I'm glad I made that decision because I think if I was crewing, I'd still be yeah, just working odd gigs totally. here and there and reaching and, distance probably wouldn't have happened. And did you meet your producers through the advertising? Uh, yeah, so Becca yeah. is um, the head of the Delhi agency yeah. who I was working for, well, still I'm working for. Um, and I remember we were shooting something for Bondi Vet it was, and okay. he was like an hour late to one of the things we were shooting for them. Um, and so we just sat on Bondi Beach and I pitched uh, the film because we had little else to do and I, it had just fallen apart with a couple of other producers. Um, and she went, yeah, let's make it. And so Becca found most of the money that the film needed to get made and um, then Kane came aboard as a more hands-on guy because he'd yep, co-produced Drown. And, um, okay, okay. So we had more of the hands-on knowledge and together we've kind of put the, the entire thing together ourselves even though we're not, none of us are super experienced producers um, in that sense more from david fairhurst in a minute and about reaching distance but first i should um give you a few words from our sponsors now the main one uh for today's podcast is the japanese film festival and specifically their classics now film festivals are pretty cool but free film festivals are even better Run by the Japan Foundation, the uh, classics that are screening are actually being made available for free. So they're screening at the Art Gallery of New South Wales from October 3 to 31. And that's the full program of classics. And um, I'll give you the blurb here now for it. From star-crossed lovers in the Meiji era to early feminists fighting societal norms, the Japanese Film Festival presents a free, did I say free, classic film program that runs until December 2. Um, Now that's because it moves to Melbourne and that's a bit of a compressed version, but Sydney's getting the full version with all of the classics being played. And these include um, Manji, the Goddess of Mercy, AKA Swastika. And that's um, a pretty fascinating film. It's from director Yasuzo Masumura. And it's a queer melodrama that follows the intriguing love affair between two society ladies. Okay, that's screening and also Mizuguchi's A Geisha is screening, which is a poignant drama about an aspiring geisha and her established mentor fighting to uphold their dignity amidst the economic pressures of post-war Kyoto. Pretty advanced stuff for, you know, 50s and 60s filmmaking. So yeah, the Japanese are always ahead of the curve. Anyway, you can see these classics on 35mm prints until the 31st of October at AGNSW in New South Wales and also at compressed version at ACMI um, from late November to um, early December. Please don't miss it um, because, you know, really it's a unique chance to see these films on the big screen, on 35mm film and free. Check out more at japanesefilmfestival.net. Also, you might want to check out the Brisbane Film Festival, which is about to kick off, I think October 11 or, uh, or thereabouts. 
and also Adelaide Film Festival, which opens October 10. I'm going to be heading to that, actually. I'll be arriving on the second day. Won't be there for opening night, but I'll be there from um, Thursday to Sunday, so watch out. Really looking forward to checking out films like Nightingale, I Am Mother, work in progress of that film, and you know Hotel Mumbai, and many others. And so that's it for me. Let's, um, let's go back to David discussing the films that changed his life. But it's interesting you mentioned, am I right in saying like, so Matt sort of somehow is part of a production company that you're Matt Levitt? Uh, Matt right? Levitt, yeah. So yeah. Matt was the lead in Drown yeah. and then I edited two shorts for Matt, um, which I should give a shout out to. So there's yeah. two really great shorts. They're both online, one called Kid and one called The Death of George Montgomery, okay. which are both amazing shorts, but just didn't get the festival. You edited that, them? Yeah, okay. um, that they deserve. Like one of them, Matt plays four characters oh. and it's kind of done in this iambic pentameter everything rhymes and it's this really really beautifully put together film but it just didn't it didn't click. get out there okay. um and so matt was kind of instrumental in terms of us casting the film um in terms of the australian industry is so small everyone kind of knows everyone and matt's been working for so long that if we had a script um we'd go, we'd just go to him and say do you know this person personally to have a look at the script and let them know if they might be interested before we approach their agent and so he he would occasionally go to people and say, hey, I've got this script that my friends are working on. Okay. Um, and so he kind of helped open up the door a little bit. So when we went to the agents, it wasn't an immediate get lost. It's, yeah. okay, you know this person. Yeah, so he kind of provided cast. a lot of the contacts yeah. we needed. Um, yeah. I wouldn't recommend going to actors that way. Uh, it's quite a, you're playing with fire that way um, and breaking convention. So if you can just go straight to the agents and do it the proper way, yeah. definitely do that. But it is um, harder to... It's when you're nobody, it, yeah, it's tricky. Yeah. Um, and so Matt just opened a lot of doors for us. Okay. Um, he wasn't then, ever going to play the lead role or anything? Or... No, I don't okay. know whether he thought that I might. <laughs> I was, oh, when it first started, I, I was almost going to play one of the... One Were of the you? roles, okay. um, and then I sat down acting? with all you. Yeah, so I, I did as a kid. Like yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm pretty good, but yeah. not. Uh, like when we started actually getting the film together, we're like, oh, this person wants to play that role. Okay, yep, because it was originally meant to be a fifty grand film where we just drove yeah, around yeah. in a circle and, and it would be me and my cheap, friends. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I'm willing to throw myself around. Um, but I remember I was chatting with Laura, the production designer. I said, I'm thinking I might be in it. She's like, oh, I'm not doing it if you do that. And I was oh, like, oh, really? Okay, cool. Interesting, isn't <laughs> I'd it? I'd rather have Laura than me acting it. So, um, Why? Because you think she would have gone, well, this is amateur hour. And yeah, this is I not... think there's a real stigma around that in Australia. Yeah. Um, I think you need to be, you know, Joel Edgerton or someone if you're going to do that. Well, and I've kind seen, of have the... This year I've seen two films that, um, you know, will remain nameless, but yeah, where the person that kind of drove the project, it's almost like a reason for them to have the lead role. And I think that yeah. they both suffer for it, you know, yeah. like, and I think so people obviously recognise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just to, if you're getting someone who's a name and has been doing this for 10 years, they're going to be better than you. So it, it, it was a, it was a practical solution at the time when the film was smaller, but as soon as it started snowballing, we started getting people like Wade Briggs to yeah. play the lead role. It was very much, I immediately backed off and went okay it's his it's his you know um do you, you mean he didn't even audition you just kind of went, uh, oh, he'll uh, be right well for the role? <laughs> we uh, um we had another actor cast okay. in the lead and we shot three or four days of the film wow and then they dropped out oh wow uh, yeah if anything so, can go wrong it does yeah it? so there's a couple of like non-bus scenes and we shot those first with him and then we we're going to come back in a month to shoot the bus stuff but then he got a better offer on another project <laughs> And there was all this, so much drama, but like we lost like 10% of our budget overnight and oh, God. the film was like a thread away from falling apart in terms of with the investors and things like this. So it was kind of a, that was a really rough period. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Like and, I, what, and Wade then came in at the yeah, last Yeah. And so we just hour. did this kind of blanket audition of like, we just went to Matt and went, everyone you could suggest, tell them to us and we'll contact their agents to try and get an audition down. Um, and so we saw all of these amazing actors that all put together tapes in the space of like three days. Wow. Um, and, uh, Wade was in Matt's short kid. Mm. I had met him on set and completely forgotten it by the time I had actually talked to him. Cause he was like shaved and he was like 20 kilos lighter. So I didn't recognize him. Um, and he just happened to have an opening in his schedule and I had a really good Skype chat with him. Um, 
And then I, the poor guy kind of had to sit for a bit because we, the studio we shot the um, film in kind of opened up the week that that was happening as well. And so we were negotiating our location and trying to recast the lead actor um, at the same time. And so I think Wade had eight days to prepare for the lead role in a film. And it kind of had a, a knock-on effect because um, Logan the Wade character, his twin sister and his mother both appear in the film. And mm. so because Wade was so physically different we had to let two actors go and then recast those roles wow Re super super last minute as well and so like half the cast by the end of it had virtually no time to prepare um these are big decisions though were you yeah. kind of like was that you driving that going well this is my film so we just had to keep going because like by that time but wouldn't you have just gone oh let's just go with it like you know what i mean or were you the one that's sort of uncompromising yeah well you, we kind of had to be like I, it was it was just kind of this juggling game of like where do you compromise and where do you not but in terms of that if someone's a twin sister they have to look somewhat yes. similar okay yeah. um <laughs> And so, yeah, it was just kind of a chaotic... Like, I was so stressed. I was scratching myself in my sleep. Oh, I ended no, up, like, yeah, waking yeah. up and pulling blood. Your teeth. Oh, really? Because wow. I'd scratched through my arm and, like, it's... Yeah, it was horrific. Suppose um, you could sleep. Yeah, yeah, it was a rough... It was a rough shoot. Um, well, the shoot itself was okay, but the lead-up to the shoot was chaos. Yeah. <laughs> so, which is so impressive. Like, a lot of... Like, the performances are amazing, and they had... So, so many of them had so little preparation. We, I think we only had two days of rehearsals and... Part of that got chewed up by stunt rehearsals as well. So it was very on the fly mm, um, mm, mm. and everyone kind of nailed it. Like I think Matt Day had virtually no time at all. And I think I never did more than two takes with him for any of his yeah. his shots he's just because he's yeah. an acting machine and <laughs> you'd like you'd, he'd just do it. And you're like, okay, that's exactly what I need. Let's just do one more for safety and make this slight adjustment in case, case I need a tonal change. And that was it. So... Um, and was it like, was yeah. your experience on the set doing these other things and then doing the commercials fed into your ability to sort of, or was it yeah. all a I bit? Part of it was just pressure of that, like all of these people had booked out a month of their lives and that, you know, that yeah, it you was were happening. You like were calling that ball the was rolling downhill <laughs> and it was going to crush us or we just had to, you know, fix everything on the fly and just make it happen. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so I just think that, like, that was quite, it was terrifying, but it was useful in terms of once you kind of get the ball rolling and there's a point of no return, once you passed it, the film has to happen, whether you like it or not, no matter how much goes wrong. Mm. Um, and I think that was, that's a very, very powerful motivator, and it's what made the film happen was just this. The energy, yeah. Yeah, yeah um, it had to get done. Like, it just had to. There was no real solution, otherwise it falls apart and you destroy your career before you've even made a film, so... Yeah. Mm. Speaking of, and are you are you sort of like you've made this film? Are you thinking of other films, or you just yeah, want to get well, this I, out? Like, I, like back when I was freelancing, I was quite productive as a screenwriter. Like whenever I had days off, I would just write stuff, and so I had a thing with like, oh, if I can write one page a day at minimum, that means I can write four scripts a year, and so I have something like twenty scripts. That all? There's only like four that are good, um, but <laughs> like I. It's kind of a question now of how reaching distance does as to what we can kind of take to investors of we made reaching distance for this much, it made this much or did this well critically, therefore yeah. if you give us a bit more, we can do this kind of thing. Okay. Um, so we kind of have three options of one that's another micro budget, another one that's kind of the next level up and then a couple that are really big just in yeah. case, you know, and so somehow things went astonishingly well and we showed it at Sundance or something, but... Yeah. But reaching distance is like, is that a micro budget? Would you call it? Like, because the, the mm, fact it's like, one location virtually, you know, like. Micro budget in Australia can typically mean like no one gets paid. Yeah. Um, yeah and okay. Everyone was paid. Yeah. Apart from like a few production assistants who were Work just experience. out of high school who just wanted a couple of days on set, but everyone else was paid union minimums. I, I think that kind of set us apart from a lot of the things that I'd worked on that was like deferred payment or, or something like that. Okay. Um, having crude on those and knowing how much it kind of messes your life up being without pay for a month can really mess you up. And we just didn't want to do that. And so that was an important thing to us was to make sure that everyone did get yeah. paid at least just enough to pay their rent and, you know, feed their family. Um, so I think that, that puts us in a bit of a higher yeah. budget bracket than, than most. Um, but still it's a low budget effort in the sense. And was that always the like, conceptualized that way? Yeah. Well, it like was meant to be much smaller than it kept ballooning and ballooning said, and ballooning yeah, and ballooning. Yeah. Um, and so now it's this kind of behemoth comparatively, though, for 
I'm sure in American indie where they're like, oh, it's an indie. It was $15 million. It seems <laughs> tiny. Yeah, but like the the majority of the, the money that was spent was just on paying people or then in post trying to make it as, as good as possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So let's wind back a little bit more. Like with Aaron, you said you 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 had other films or whatever. Like you made a list. I don't know if you've got any other films. Uh, that yeah. Well, I'm trying to um, What else do I have on my list? Oh, yeah. Hard Candy was a big one okay. in terms of – I love that film. It's so intense. Um, <laughs> but that was another one in terms of the story of how it was made. It's just as inspiring. It was a producer that just had this great house that he had access to um, it was like, oh, this is a really beautiful cinematic house. I'll just hire a screenwriter to write something that's two characters in this house. I did not know um, the story and behind it was, that. Yeah, yeah, it was just that basic. And then he just got an amazing screenwriter on that crafted this incredibly tense cat and mouse between two people. They got David Slade, who had at that point only ever done music videos and ads and things like that. It was yeah. kind of in a similar position to me, but was just this incredibly like powerful stylistic person. And then just two amazing leads and that film blew up. Just a gigantic amount, and that was made for like a million dollars, something okay. like that. Um, and just the like the the pure s- style of that film helps carry it. And even though it is just two people in a house for ninety minutes, it's so tense and it's so beautifully done. Um, and it was one of the first films to really push the color grade of it as well, in terms of just having it feel really stylized and the color grade like changes in shots as well, like people's faces darken and. Mm. brightened where it's not a practical light it's done in post yeah um yeah so i think that was quite inspiring in terms of like i I do have other scripts that are probably more personal and more autobiographical Mm -hmm. i guess but reaching distance was something i could get made for Mm. the amount of money that i could get together and that becca could get together so it was um it was born out of that practicality of yeah what can we do with the resources we have um Totally. I guess there's other films that kind of like El Mariachi, I think, is the one, yeah. the big one that everyone goes to. And like A Rebel Without a Crew, that book is yeah. amazing. But that was someone just going, well, I have these resources and this amount of time and then writing around that. And so there was an element of a practicality in that. Um, and donating blood. And uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just don't have <laughs> oh, no, time. Did he donate blood or, or, or did experiments on his body or something? Yeah, he signed up for medical experiments that's for right. a month. Then. Which reminds me, actually, I, was, I started watching, I didn't finish it, but that show Maniac on Netflix and that's, oh, kind okay, of, yeah. that's the part of the concept of it, I think. Yeah, Maniac is very similar to Reaching Distance, actually. I was watching that being like, please don't be the same. <laughs> yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's a lot of stylistic stuff that's very similar in that in terms of... Yeah, I found it hard memory, though. Yeah. What, what did you find? Like, I found it. You've hard got to get through the first two episodes. That's right. The first yeah. episode, you're going how, and it's it's interesting that they're allowed to do that now on telly. I mean, or telly, you yeah. know, like in inverted commas. But yeah, like you never you used to be able to do that because if you don't yeah. continue after that first app, then it's dead. It's kind of made to be binge watched. Yeah, think, which is yeah, yeah. It's a bit of a that yeah. they can do a slow burn like that. Like maybe the first three episodes before they kind of get into the tests. Where That's right. Things well, really get interesting. It's a lot of just character building. So you stay so with all it, this yeah. stuff pays off, yeah. Because you were going, oh my it's god, very this much is my turn, kind of thing, yeah. And it's going to turn into reaching distance. Oh my god, yeah. Um, there's been a few films that have come out where I've been like, oh please God, no, um, don't be the same. <laughs> uh, thankfully, I've been alright. Um, yeah. yeah, which is so. You, uh, and I'm going to wind back a little bit more though. Like you said, you were a child actor. Was that like something like you said? Oh, mum, I want to do yeah. that. Is that right? Yeah, because I love movies yeah. and I want to be. I was a very camp child. Uh, I was kind of obsessed <laughs> with acting, and I. I think I played one of the children who lived in a shoe when I was like five and then slowly kind of built up from there. And I was part of like a, a state-run theatre company okay. for I think three or so years where it was a way to – it was like a government-funded way to have teenagers have a professional theatre experience so that you would put on productions in the Seymour Centre or like on all these major theatres okay. um, where it was entirely like a youth cast or you were working with established actors and things like that. And so that was a very formative Period. And you say you weren't very good at it, but ultimately, what you were obviously maybe more interested in other things. Well, or? well, I got sat down by a casting director who said, "You're too ugly to ever find oh. enough work to survive in Sydney." Um, <laughs> they were that blunt. So, like, when I think it was I was approaching <laughs> eighteen, trying and to figure yourself. out exactly what I wanted to do. Well, they were right. They were totally right. Like, I have, I know people that have worked on Neighbours, and they cast roles out of like underwear modelling catalogues. I'll just flick it open and be like, he's attractive, use him. Um, so they were just breaking not, it down. Yeah, for you like, to go. not, it's yeah. like, I'm just not the look to find work in Australia. Like, I, I think they did follow it up with, like, try moving to England or something if you can. <laughs> um, you could get, like, inbred Duke rolls or something over there. Uh, you know, 
Um, That's classic. Well, yeah, how old but they, they were completely right. I think I was like 17, 18. Wow. Um, and I kind of been yeah. learning after just failing and failing and failing as an actor that I would never actually find stuff that I was interested in. Like I kind of found an, all the roles I was getting was kind of like the jerk bully or the crack addict kind of thing. Um, and so, yeah, I just started making my own shorts and casting myself in them because um, that was the only way to get stuff made. And then I started enjoying that side of things more and more and more. Your folks were encouraging um, and everything? My like folks they... have been very encouraging. So they're not in this area at all? No, my mum uh, was a physio and my dad was a, a minister okay. and now works for a missionary organisation. Okay. Um, so not very artsy. Like but my brother s- played music and like they've, they're, my mum's a big cinephile, but... They were weirdly supportive. Um, would they take you? know, you mentioned cinephile. Would they take you to the movies, or would you yeah. see stuff? I think home? that was quite a big yeah, that was thing a... that we would typically go to the movies a lot. We were always late, so there's a lot of classic films where I hadn't seen the first ten minutes until oh, I'd watched it myself. Bad at parking or something. Uh, no, just spot. bad at organisation. <laughs> um, so now I'm very anal about watching films. I'm there as soon as the credits, uh, the you know, trailers start. Um, That's funny. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think what was some of the the first film I ever remember going to was, was it Miracle on Thirty First Street, the Christmas yeah, 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 yeah. movie, like the remake with yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, the remake, yes, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I remember hating that so much as a kid. <laughs> and being like, what is this? I don't care. I think it's because my parents had explained to me that Santa Claus wasn't real by that stage. Okay. So I was like, Well, he's not real. Who could, that's the end of the movie? Yeah, um, and yeah, so I just yeah. found some other random girl and we just played tag in the aisle and then got kicked out. Okay. So it wasn't was that that wasn't the exactly that, that went to the cinema. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Um, was it was it Richard Attenborough or someone? I think so. Yeah, yeah. he played. Um, Santa, yeah. That didn't really impact me. I think a lot of it was kind of the classic stuff. Star Wars was really big for me as a kid. Indiana Jones. Yeah, I definitely wanted to be a Thunderbird for some reason. That was a really big thing as a kid. Um, okay. Yeah, I so think the, there was, the part there was of the side guys, the things that are, you know, yeah, the classic films culture. you have to watch. Yeah. There was a lot of like British comedies. We saw Monty Python when we were quite young. Though they'd fast forward through the yeah. the worst bits of, of some of them, but I remember seeing Monty Python and the Holy Grail dozens of times as a kid. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, it was a little bit eclectic, the kind of stuff that we got exposed to. And then, yeah, because I was kind of at a, I was a, a good age in terms of the internet beginning to come out, I was able to research stuff yeah. when I was a bit older and kind of track stuff down. Like, um, And one, one benefit of my childhood is that I grew up in an area that was kind of like, 50% Chinese, Korean, sort of more Asian nationalities. And so I became like a huge John Woo fan by the time I was like 12 and yeah. managed to have terribly subtitled versions of Hard Boiled. So you I got access to them what, through there was the just, community? Yeah, well, you, they would sell these probably bootleg DVDs just on the street yeah, yeah, um, yeah. in Chinese supermarkets and stuff. And so I managed to get like a full Chow Yun Fat collector's box oh, okay, thing okay. that had like 10 of his movies and became very, very obsessed with and then realized that John Woo was the director yeah. of a lot of um, them. Like and the then found his American films and was kind of heartbroken. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, after easy. starting with The Killer and, you know, um, I highly recommend Once a Thief, if you've ever seen it. It was John Woo's attempt at doing a romantic comedy. It is no, the no. most insane film is I've it? ever seen in my life. Okay. Um, <laughs> it, it's, it's completely bonkers. Because um, it's weird. Those films, they didn't really kind of like get general release almost. Like, no, they seem to be cult like... films in America, but not here. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think it was just purely by benefit of just being around, they kind of got sold for cheap. Yeah, so you would have seen them probably a lot earlier than, yeah, because I remember yeah. like one of the fringe sort of distributors did pick up and, you know, and then on the reputation of... Yeah, you know, I still don't think there's been a proper Blu-ray, Blu-ray release of Hard Boiled in okay. Australia. Um, and if it is, I think it's a, like, there's like a couple of terrible copies out there. Um, yeah. yeah, like that was, I remember I kind of taught myself to edit by, I ripped a lot of John Woo's films before I had a camera, I ripped it into my computer and then in like Windows Movie Maker, just cut every single shot apart and like took the film to pieces and then like reassembled it. And I kind of taught myself how to edit just by kind of taking all these John Woo movies apart and putting them back together. I'd make like little montages set to Rage Against the Machine or something. It was a very 12-year-old boy, but... Well, um, that, that was quite influential in terms now. of helping me, yeah. <laughs> Doing recuts yeah, yeah. of movies and, you know, if only you had the time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they're probably out the there. There's a lot of embarrassing videos that are probably out there somewhere. Um, yeah, but that was a big thing. Okay. Um, yeah, there's a video out there of me pretending to be Rocky and we did like a full Rocky montage parody. So this was like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So which one? The first one? The... 
uh, well, it was like me weightlifting my cat and stuff like that. Like it wasn't, it wasn't cool. <laughs> okay. um, yeah, I thought I was a comedian. Looking back at them again, uh, hopefully. So, because so, so this was like at the beginning of computers editing things. Yeah, like yeah. That's when you started getting. Your, um, uh, like I was quite lucky, but I think my my parents saved up, and I think it was a really big deal for them that they bought me. It's like a Canon HV30, I think, which was like one of the it was like the first or one of the last like HD tape cameras. Okay. Um, I remember talking to one of the salesmen who's like, oh, no, this whole digital card thing is unreliable and it won't continue. <laughs> um, and so I got stuck with these really expensive tapes um, that you just have to record over and over again and then ingest into the computer. And uh, they were a nightmare. But, yeah, my parents saved up and they bought me a, like a Mac Mini and this camera that could kind of... I think that was around the time I was like 16. And so that's kind of... I would make 10 shorts a year with those things. Um and was there one point yeah. where, you know, how you, you made, like, that you, you made a, a one that got it accepted into a film festival and things like that? No, no. <laughs> they were just done uh, for shits no, and giggles. I would, I would yeah. enter into festivals and get rejected and become bitter. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Would you write letters saying, <laughs> no. I did once. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> I have complained to a couple of film festivals. That's a beautiful thing about Vimeo now is you can send an individual link to every festival that watched it. And there's a few that I sent reaching distances and I'm like, you watched 12 minutes of the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I paid you an $80 entry fee. That Yeah, smarts. that whole world um, is just, it's mental. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, like the world's a small place, but, you know. Yeah, yeah for a feature, at least give it 20 minutes, you know. Um, yeah. Get through the first act. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and so for like my HSC year for all of my major works, I just made a bunch of films. Yeah, um, which was great because with the course load I was doing, all of my major works were done. Like I just shot them all in the first term. Yeah, and so I had nothing to do for the rest of the year in a lot of these classes, and I got told not to come <laughs> to visual arts anymore because I was just a distracting influence to all the other kids. So uh, yeah, it was a great way to kind of get out of classwork. Um, yeah. That's yeah, and so I used a lot of my high school shorts to, to get into film school. Um, okay. Yeah, I made a bunch of Tropfest films that were terrible as well. Really? Didn't, I, didn't, yeah. didn't make the cut? Um, no. I, okay. Like, I kind of just... I'm one despairing. of those people that needs to learn by failing. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah, so yeah. I think I'd made 50 shorts by the time I was finishing up film school, but the last two were good, and those got into festivals, yeah, and those yeah. built up enough that when I was making more substantial stuff, I had a decent showreel to send to people. Um, yeah, and so I've always been very practical. Like, I've never really got the attitude of I'm going to wait till it's perfect until I make it. I'm just more of a... Get, do it. Get yeah, it done. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. The, the script for Reaching Distance changed so much in the journey of just getting it made. In terms of practical stuff, like the rear projection we were talking about, as soon as we locked in, okay, rear projection is the way we're doing this. Um, I worked in a scene set in a cinema where we would have that projection going. And so it kind of tied into his memories again. It was kind of a way of, and then added a scene about him looking outside and seeing that it's like a projection. And so there's all these yeah, kind of cues. ways of reverse engineering yeah. it to turn it into the story. So it becomes yeah. deliberate instead yeah, of- Yeah, yeah, part of the world that yeah. you've created as opposed to reality or whatever, yeah. Yeah, and then at, like our rehearsals were chaotic, but um, I was very set on the idea of, well, the actors will- want to kind of make it their own and come up with ideas and rehearsals. And so we cut, I think, five pages of dialogue between the final day of rehearsal and the first day of shoot. So that weekend, I just culled a huge, huge chunks of dialogue from the script as soon as I knew I didn't need it. Um, And so I I kind of left stuff in there where it felt a little bit wordy, but I was like, just trust me, wait until we get to rehearsals. and I just need to see the actors try it to know that I don't need need it. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so it things were kind of constantly shifting and evolving. And so it was better to just start and kind of get the ball rolling because by the time you're shooting it, it's going to change completely anyway. And then in the edit, it's going to change again. So mm. I don't think you can ever... It's dangerous to try and wait for the script to be perfect or everything to be in the right place. You just kind of... We just got started and then it kind of all comes together. Yeah. In Because it took a year to kind of get from getting the money to shooting it. So... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it means the film, yeah. I guess, is alive, is a bit more alive than if it's totally yeah. planned to the last thing. Yeah. yeah. And um, I think, like, it's interesting, you know, we started this conversation on film like Die Hard, and I think that film, you know, like, I, I feel like in some ways modern film these days, because of CGI and things like that, it's like everyone works to perfect it or something, and then that takes away some of the... 
Yeah. I don't know. Or it's know, just so easy to second unit or, stuff or to, to kind of post it as well that it, or to put the film together in post that I think, yeah, it's a bit, yeah. But that said, I'm sure you saved it a bit in post, yeah? Like, oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> there's entire, there's like a fight scene in the film where as we were shooting, I'm like, there's not enough coverage to make this work. And so can't give it away with spoilers, but yeah. if you, when you see the fight scene in the film, the way that it became reconstructed was something that we figured out on set. Um, that there was kind of this alternate stuff that kind of fills it in that actually makes it far more... Oh, man, how do I put this? Uh, that makes it far more dramatic because we kind of restructured it on set purely because we just didn't have enough time to to shoot exactly what we needed and still yeah. have it feel um, how it needed to. Um, and there's like an entire... The helpful thing was because I've been editing for so long, I'm very fast at it. And so on the weekends when we'd wrap, I'd go to our office and I'd cut everything that we'd shot together. Mm. And so um, by the time that we'd finished the first week, I had the whole first kind of third of the film together as an assembly. And because we were back in the bus, I was able to go back and say, we need this shot and this shot and this shot. And fill in the um, gaps, yeah. And fill in the gaps and then kind of restructure things. Um, and there's like a montage scene in the film where 80% of it is made up of the ends of takes from other bits and pieces or alternate takes that weren't used and... So it's it's really ramshackle. I think there was something like <laughs> our poor colorist. Um, when we were handing over the footage, I think it was over two thirds of every single take that was shot is in the finished film. Um, mm. So the shooting ratio was incredibly um, high. No, yeah, low. One of those. One we of those. A, we, like, yeah, you use most everything of your we shot yeah, is yeah. in the film. Yeah, right. um, in one way or another. Right. Well, I'm going to wind it up, David. I think we've got heaps, and uh, people have to now go and see the film so that they can yes. <laughs> un unravel all the uh, clues you've left for them. Hmm. You know, like yeah. So thanks for coming in. Oh, thanks for having me. Cheers, David Fairhurst, talking about the films that changed his life, and also um, his amazing, mind-blowing debut feature, Reaching Distance, which we're presenting here at Film Inc. It stars Wade Briggs um, as this guy who's kind of on a night rider bus and sort of wakes up, he's been asleep, and he sees all these people on the bus, and they all trigger memories for him. Memories that he thinks have actually happened already on the bus or elsewhere, but he just can't piece it together. And so you watch the film figuring out as he does. The film stars um, features, you know, Matt Day, Tara Maurice, Eddie Baru, Morgan Griffin, Maine Wyatt, Sophia Forrest, um, AKA Twiggy's daughter. Um, I hope she doesn't get offended there. And um, stars Wade Briggs, who's amazing in the film. And as you found out in the podcast, he wasn't the original choice, but he does a fabulous job. He's great. Now there's some event screenings coming up in Sydney, October 17 at Event Cinema George Street, as well as October 29 at Event Cinema Quarry. October 22 at Lido Hawthorne in Melbourne. November 5 at GU Filmhouse in Adelaide. November 12 uh, at Event Cinemas in Aloo in Perth. And same day we've got it at Brisbane Maya Centre in Brisbane, of course. Also probably going to be showing at Evoca and uh, various other screenings down the track. I really encourage you to see this film and come to one of these event screenings because there'll be Q&As and it'll be pretty special and your mind will be blown. More information you can find at Filming Presents Facebook page or on the Filming website. So you click Filming Presents and then you'll find Reaching Distance there. Get tickets, um, check it out, support Australian film and innovative Australian film to boot. Um, so that's it for me for this chat. I um, want to thank David for coming in and um, I'm excited to see what he comes up with next. Now, I thought about films that may have changed my life that relate to this chat. And I thought the best uh, example I could give you would be King Kong. Now, not the Jessica Lange, Jeff Bridges one or whatever, but the actual original one that was made in 1933. And the reason I say that is because, as David said in our chat, um, he used rear projection in his film, and it really does give it a really unique uh, look. It's really unlike any film you would have seen for a while not since 1933 because of course you know people like Alfred Hitchcock and you know film noir and whatnot used it extensively but King Kong did as well in order to create the sort of effects that it did you know with no help from CGI 
I believe King Kong was the first film I ever saw in a cinema. You know, I grew up in the Ukraine, you know, till I was nine years old. That was always pretty backwards back in the USSR. And uh, I think it was in 1979 or 78 or 77 or thereabouts that I would have seen King Kong in the cinema. <laughs> so yeah, they were very late. Not anymore, of course. And uh, you, you should definitely check out the Russian Resurrection Film Festival coming up in November because um, they are out doing Hollywood at Hollywood. But... I feel like King Kong is such a significant film. It's, um, and I'm not even like, I'm not a sci-fi fantasy fan, but, you know, it was such a sort of romantic, like, you know, your Don Quixote, your, you know, it's like classic literature almost, King Kong. And so beautifully done. And it was believable, even though, of course, back in those days, effects were pretty um, limited. But that didn't matter. You know, I was swept away, I was blown away, and um, here I am, you know, devoting my life to cinema. Partly, I would say, because I saw King Kong at a significant time in my life. So in the same way that uh, <laughs> David earlier in the chat said, Die Hard blew him away, mine's King Kong, which just shows how old I am, I suppose. But that said, he also, you know, loved Buster Keaton. Anyway, try to track down King Kong, it's really worth your while. That's it for me. I'm Dov Cornett. You've been listening to the films that changed your, my life, your life, everyone's life. See you at the cinema, guys. Thank you.